When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey all you heroes, hawks, heralds, crows, pirates, and wardens. Welcome to the Dragon Age Lorecast, where we unpack, discuss, and galaxy brain about all the lore behind the Dragon Age series. We are so excited to bring you this podcast. Every episode, we'll be talking about a different topic in the Dragon Age universe, from character deep dives to exalted marches and elven gods. We will cover it all. There will be spoilers. And always remember, swooping is bad. Welcome to the Dragon Age Lorecast, where we talk about all things Dragon Age and its lore. I'm one of your hosts, Austin, also known as Teacup. And I'm your other host, Shelby or Sheacup. All right. And Shelby, what are we doing today? Um, well, we have a pretty exciting topic. I know when I when we first introduced this episode, like three, four months ago, or introduced this season three or four months ago, I was like, this season is going to be all about Exalted Marches, and we've literally covered two. But we're back with another one today, (laughs) and we are talking about the Exalted March against the Imperial Chantry of Taventer. Ooh, more Taventer, yay. You can tell how I feel about Taventer. Well, you know, you kind of need to, like, get on board with Taventer because we're going there in the next game. Yeah, I know. I hate it. I'm sorry. I'm just going to say that, like, I hate it as a country and I want to see it go away. But maybe my opinion will change in the next game. I'm just going to claim it here and now. It's probably not going to change in the next game. Probably not. And I love, I love Dorian. And I love that he wants his country to be better. But I'm not convinced that it will be better. And part of that is my own, like, despair and lack of hope for my own country, because the two are very similar. But not what our conversation is about today is not Austin's hate for Taventer. Taventer is the new Anders. Let's just call it now. Wow. I didn't know you would ever be able to move on. I'm over Anders. He doesn't deserve any more of my attention. (laughs) 
God, that is so dramatic and rude. You know, he's a victim too. Yes, I do know that. Okay. I do know that. I'm just going to like start reminding you of that once a week. Okay. But anyway, let's get into this exalted march. Um, So it's not really one exalted march. It's like four exalted marches that are grouped together. They occurred during the Black Age and the Exalted Age. And again, as we've already mentioned, they were called against the Imperial Chantry of Tevinter. So really, if we really want to talk about it, there are five exalted marches, marches, marches against Tevinter. Yep. So this is kind of like how we talk about the Crusades, that like there are four over several, at least a hundred years that happen at different times, but we all talk about them as like the Crusades. This is very similar to that, that there's the exalted marches against the Tevinter Chantry. Yes, it is very similar. And it's it's similar again because this is the Chantry versus the Chantry. So it's almost like a Chantry civil war. And the Crusades are not a civil war, but the Crusades are absolutely religions fighting against one another. And that's what we have here, even though they're both called the Chantry. They're pretty different religions. And we'll get into some of that. But first, let's get into some trivia and fun facts. So my first fun fact is about the divine. And I'm going to be honest, there's not a lot of fun facts specifically about this march. So my fun facts are about uh, the Tevinter Chantry in general. So anyway, there are lots of different nicknames for the divine of the Imperial Chantry. The official name is the Imperial Divine. In the South, he's known as the Black Divine. In Tevinter, he's known as the True Divine. These are established things that we've talked about on the Lorecast before. However, one thing I learned during my research is that both of the nicknames are sacrilegious to each other. Hmm, right. Because in, in 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 the Orlesian Chantry, to say that this is the True Divine is sacrilegious because their Divine is the True Divine. But to say that their Divine is this Black Divine. Right. It's not. I do think that Bioware does need to like talk about and maybe retire the Black Divine, especially since Tevinter is associated with so much evil and the kind of trope of associating evil with the color black has, at least in America, has big racial connotations. That's a really fair point. Absolutely agreed. Um, But my next fun fact, not to kind of derail from your point, but just to move us along a little bit. The Imperial Divine is also the leader of the Circle of Magi in Tevinter, which is interesting, but makes complete sense. And then lastly, the Exalted March is against the Imperial Chantry specifically. It's important to note that it's not an Exalted March against all of Tevinter, even though I know we just joked about that. So when we're talking about it, like in terms of naming the Exalted March against Tevinter, is Andraste's Exalted March. So it's easy to get these confused, but we're talking about the Imperial Chantry today. Which it's, I mean, you could really be splitting hairs because if the Divine is the leader of the Circle of Magi, you're waging a Exalted March and religious war against a branch of the Tevinter government. Yeah, but I disagree with that because, first of all, not everyone in Tevinter is a mage. That's true. Second of all... 
at this point in time, not everyone in the Tevinter government is mage either. So it's, I don't think it's, I think it's confusing to say that this is another march against Tevinter. I think we do need to be specific, even though the lines do get blurred for sure. Okay. So this is pre before like the establishment of like the, when we talked about Tevinter and its structure with the mat, with the uh, magisterium and all the other, the altus and all of the other classes there. I think the classes exist, but there are still checks on magic at this time is probably the best Mm. way to put it, which we will get into at the very end of the episode when we talk about the effects and changes from this Exalted March. So there are two major things that provide background and context and lead up to this Exalted March. The first one is another Exalted March, actually, the Exalted March against Starkhaven. And then the second thing is theological differences. So let's dive into the Exalted March first. So before we get into the four Exalted Marches against the Imperial Chantry, we need to talk about Starkhaven. And this is a mini Exalted March. It's not It's not like a big deal. It's small. Um If you remember from our Free Marches episode, King Phyrus was the ruler of Starkhaven at this time, and he wanted to unite all of the city-states in the Free Marches under his own banner. Do you remember this? Mm Mm-hmm. And specifically under the banner of Starkhaven. At the time, Starkhaven was the largest, most prosperous, wealthiest Free March city. So how does Phyrus's campaign to unite the free marches do anything at all with the exalted march against the imperial chantry well this is because Phyrus had friends and allies in none other than Tevinter, and they were supporting and backing him which suggests to me that he was indeed a puppet king so ultimately Phyrus fails completely in his attempt to unite the free marches and at this point, his Tevinter allies betray him, as one could have expected in this situation. In the year 245 Glory, his Tevinter allies not only betrayed him, but they usurped him. And they staged a coup and kicked him out of Starkhaven, banned, banned him from the whole city. So the Chantry led an exalted march to basically reconquer and reclaim Starkhaven from Tevinter. And this occurred in 280 Glory, which was, to be fair, over 30 years after Tevinter had conquered it in the first place. So I think at that point, they actually do have a claim. Like they fought a war, they ousted this guy, and they've held on to it for 30 years. That could be a whole entirely different generation of rulers at that point. But I bring this up because it establishes a pattern of the Chantry being aggressive toward Tevinter. Yes, Andraste led her war against Tevinter, but the Chantry wasn't around at that time. So I don't think until this point, the Chantry has a precedent of being antagonistic and aggressive against Tevinter. The exalted march to Starkhaven is really one of, if not the first major battle that the Chantry took against Tevinter. Yeah, and I think that it, it kind of tracks with me kind of leading up to this. And I'm so glad that we did this this other Exalted March before we did this. The Chantry is just kind of ramping up on a roll of like, if you're not getting on board, we're going to bring down the might on you because, and I think the time difference is because of the Exalted March on the Dales. 
that's why they don't deal with it right away because they're dealing with this exalted march first and then they got to ramp up but if they're very much establishing this pattern if you're not going to get on board with this if you're not going to get on board with androstenism and our vision of power we're coming for you Right. And I 100% agree with you. And that's the reason why we're doing this one after the Dales, because the exalted march against the Dales happens from about 210 to 220 glory, which is about 20 years before the exalted march to start Caven. And so we're doing them chronologically. So yeah, absolutely. They're completely trying to recover from the exalted march to the Dales because they're completely devastated, not only from the blight that happened a few years ago. And, you know, the elves really sacked a lot of places, including Val Royo. So they've got to rebuild. And 25 years after that, they've probably not finished rebuilding everything. All right. So that's that is the exalted march to Starkhaven, and just keep that in mind as we continue throughout the rest of the episode but now i want to get into the theological differences that lead up to these exalted marches some of these we've talked about before in our imperial chantry episode so i'm not going to go super in depth some of them we haven't quite talked about fully yet. The first, probably the most important of all of the theological differences is the organization of the chantry, the ecclesiology, if you will. And this is because it forms the foundation of animosity between the Orlesian chantry and the imperial chantry. To go into the history a little bit, Tevinter Archon Hesarian, who, as a reminder, was Archon while Andraste was alive and fighting against Tevinter, converted to Andrastianism 10 years to the day after her assassination and martyrdom. He converts and claims that he heard the voice of the maker, not Andraste. He claims he heard the voice of the maker. So he publicly converts abolishes the religion of the old gods, makes Andrastianism the official religion of Tevinter, and reveals Maphrath's betrayal to everyone. This all occurred in minus 160 ancient. Now, on the other side, in Orlais, Emperor Cordillus Draken I of Orlais was also converted to Andrastianism. He wanted to unite all of Orlais under the Chant of Light, which he then made his life's mission. And he started work on building the first Chantry building in minus 15 ancient. In minus 12 ancient, Draken wrote the Canticle of Exaltations, which is currently a verse and chapter in the Chant of Light. The temple was completed in minus three ancient, and Divine Justinia I was appointed as the first divine for all of Androstianism in one one divine. Of course, this is also the establishing of the calendar, which is again different from Tevinter's calendar. Now, you may have already picked up on the issue at hand, right? Hesarian converts himself and all of Tevinter to Androstianism in minus one sixty ancient. Draken does pretty much the exact same thing with some conquesting thrown in in minus 15 ancient. That's almost 150 years of Tevinter worshiping Andraste officially on the books before Orlay. So you can imagine that when Draken appoints the divine to rule over all of the Andrastians, 
The Taventers take this as an insult, and they do. They considered themselves to be the Holy Land, if you will, for all Andrastians, because she lived and she died there. She was also martyred and killed and assassinated there. So I think that these early years of Draken establishing the Chantry, conquesting, claiming that Orlay is the is the capital of the Chantry, basically, is the foundation of animosity between the two groups. And pretty much from one one divine, it goes downhill from there. What are your thoughts? Um, my thoughts are when you said a one for one, like this was going to be very, very similar to our actual crusades. I was like, oh, there will be just something. That-. No, this is like almost exactly how the crusades in the like Middle Ages happened. Yeah, it is very, very similar. Um, And like for just a history, I know you know this history, so I don't have to explain it to you. But for our listeners who don't know, basically what kind of sets up as this is that first we kind of have this moment. It's both before and kind of during the time. Because again, the Crusades are over like at least several hundred years, the all four of them. And so there's a lot that happens. But like in the middle of that time, the church splits into what will now become basically the Eastern Orthodox and the Eastern path of the empire and the, what we know is the Roman Catholic church. And so they established this Pope and then several Popes later, they basically say, you know, okay, let's go conquer the Holy land where Jews and Muslims have been living for a lot longer. And, even Christians have been living for a lot longer. Now, there's a lot of displacement that happens because, and this is way back in like around the first century in 70 AD, there's a big displacement because there's a rebellion that comes up in Jerusalem and then Rome comes and they sack Jerusalem and everyone's dispersed. So that's why there's all this like idea of like coming back to Jerusalem. And so, but they say that, and so basically the rulers of this land of Palestine, uh, Salah Hadin, which I know from our Assassin's Creed forecast, and if you want to deal in this time, go play the first Assassin's Creed, he basically says, no, 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 no. We have a claim to this holy land too. You stop right there. Like, we're not any inferior to you just because you have your high and mighty power in Rome. And then voila. Right. And that situation is almost exactly what I've just described for you in Thetis. Right. But the diff- one of the differences is that there are a lot more theological differences than just that. Um, there are other ones. And the second biggest one, I think, is Andraste's divinity, which I think we've mentioned before on the show. But the Imperial Chantry, they do differ in their beliefs about Andraste's divinity from the Orlesian Chantry. And so the Imperial Chantry believes that she was just a mortal prophet. Anything she did that was miraculous came from her superior talents as a renowned mage. And then on the other hand, the Orlesians believe it um, that she was divine herself and that she was taken to stand beside the maker when she died. And so also interestingly, the Orlesian Chantry does allow Andraste to be worshipped. They say they don't really worship her, but it's not explicitly prohibited. But the Imperial Chantry does explicitly forbid the worship of Andraste. 
I know I give Bioware a lot of crap for them saying that the Chantry is not based on Christianity. And I get what they're saying, that they're saying it's not a one-for-one comparison. But this is almost exact. Whoever is their consultant or this knows their church history because this is exactly what happens to the church. I know, I know. And like there are real people in our real world who really fought over these very things with the person of Jesus. Like their mm-hmm. their names are um, Arius and the other one whose name I'm blanking on. Athanasius. Athanasius. Thank you. Like this really happened in the first couple of centuries after Jesus's death. Like th- this, this exact, very exact thing happened in our real, real world history. So yes, very clearly a writer at Bioware took inspiration from this. And I don't think that it's a bad thing at all because it makes a compelling story. Mm-hmm. But again, we're still not done with the theological differences. We have a couple more. Um, the next one is the role of men, which I know we've talked about on the show before uh, many times. But just to give a refresher to those of you who might skip around in episodes, um, men are not allowed in the Orlesian Chantry to exceed the rank of brother. So that's the highest they can go. They can't become like a revered brother or the divine or anything like that. They cannot lead chantries and the divine is always a woman. The Imperial Chantry is just the opposite. Men have access to all levels of ranking and the divine is always a man. Whereas, So that implies to me, we don't quite have confirmation that women are like stuck at a, a certain level, but I'm assuming that they probably would be. And then lastly, Orlesian Chantry priests are expected to remain celibate, but almost all of the priests in the Imperium get married and work in the clergy, quote, tends to run in families. So this is really interesting to me from a point because, you know, we always like have the stereotypical ideology that, you know, you have the Catholic like celibacy, like priests are always celibate. But that has not always been the practice of the church. Like there were as late as the 10th century or the 900s, there were priests that were married and that could marry and have families. And so it's interesting to me, like this is another kind of parallel, but it's also different because yes, the church has had prohibitions against women serving in different roles but it's not we've never until kind of recently in our history we've never had like this resurgence of whole organizations saying no we let women do this and no real church has kind of done the flip-flop of saying men can't be clergy but women can you're judging me i'm not judging you i'm just wondering if maybe we should try that i don't know There's a lot of bad men out there. Maybe we should try that. But that's not fair because there's a lot of good men out there, too. And I won't be a jerk. But, however, I did want to say you're right that priests in our world, in the Catholic Church at least, like they only started becoming celibate after the Norman invasion. And I looked this up. That happened in about 1066. So, you know, like this is not a recent development, but like. Of 2,000 plus years of history, that's only half of it. Mm-hmm. 
So, yeah, it is an interesting parallel again. But I think that the greatest source of actual conflict and not just like theological difference, but actual physical conflict comes from, as you could have guessed, blood magic. And this this has uh, textual evidence, too, from the Canticle of Transfigurations, from the Chant of Light. This is the greatest source of conflict, I think, in not all of Thetis, but close to it. Um, and so different groups translate and interpret it differently. And so we've discussed at length on the podcast this, the interpretations of it and everything, but we've never actually gone into the actual text of the passage. And so I want to do that today. Um, and so I'm going to read this portion of the Chant of Light, and it comes from the Canticle of Transfigurations, chapter one. And it's verses two and three. Magic exists to serve man and never to rule over him. Foul and corrupt are they who have taken his gift and turned it against his children. They shall be named Maleficar, accursed ones. They shall find no rest in this world or beyond. All men are the work of our maker's hands, from the lowest slaves to the highest kings. Those who bring harm without provocations to the least of his children are hated and accursed by the maker. So this is a really interesting passage to me for a number of reasons. But first, I wanted to ask you, do you have any thoughts about this excerpt? Do you think that the Imperial Chantry, according to their interpretation, follows this? Why or why not? I do not think they follow it. And I'm going to surprise everyone. I think it has nothing to do with blood magic. And I think it has everything to do with slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's this line that stuck out to me when I was reading this. All men are the work of the maker's hands, which we can read. All humans are the work of the maker's hands from the lowest slaves or to the highest kings. Those who bring harm without provocation to the least of his children are hated and accursed by the maker. I'm sorry to venture. You can argue all the want about how you don't think blood magic and like having mages in power is not ruling over them but the fact that you have an institution of slavery that causes so much harm and detriment to a group of people now i it's mainly else but humans can be enslaved too so if we want to get into this like you are doing this to children of the maker based on your interpretation you're not following this and it has nothing to do with blood magic Right. I absolutely 100% agree with you because like it's not mages being in power. It's not mages ruling that are the issue. It's mages having unlimited power. It's mages having the only power into Venter because this then allows them to go to the links that we see them go to by which we see them use innocent people, slaves, humans, elves, Kunari, dwarves, I'm sure all of them as basically fodder for their blood magic. That also is not... You know, that is harming people without provocation. Um, and so I agree with you. Like, it's not just about the magic. It's more about how they use and harm other people, especially how they use people as slaves and the system of slavery to uphold their whole entire government and system of operating. And the same, I'm going to turn it on the other thing. 
I will have the same criticism of the Orlesian Chantry when it comes to alienages and their treatment of elves, when it comes to their treatment of mages in the Orlesian Chantry and the, and the, you know, you want to talk about this. This is a real kind of thing. Templar's abilities are fueled by lyrium. They, in, you could make the argument that they are using magic to rule over the maker's children. But not even that. You can also argue that the Chantry, by forcing the t- the Templars to ingest lyrium to gain their powers, are also harming without provocation the people who have joined the Templar order. And not mm-hmm. only that, not only that, but I think that you can make the argument that no one in Thetis is, or actually more accurately, almost everyone in Thetis in some way has brought harm without provocation to another person. And so for me, that then begs the question of like, okay, if every system in Thetis, if every government in Thetis is guilty of this, maybe that's why the maker is absent because he has said, all of my children have brought harm against each other for no reason. So now I hate them. I curse them and I am no longer there for them. But this is like, this is the Chantry's doctrine. And whether the Imperial Chantry has a difference, and it is also their doctrine. It's the same doctrine. If you're not going to adhere to it, then why are you surprised at people calling you out on it or people looking at you and calling yourselves a hypocrite? You know, you can interpret it differently. That's fine. That's well within your rights. But to like blatantly say, blatantly ignore parts of it is really like what we're what we're here about because i've never seen anything in the lore any taventer even really acknowledging this whole from the lowest slaves to the highest kings bit we've never seen that mm-hmm. but let's move on a little bit um to kind of how they come how they find out that they're interpreting this passage differently as a recap because i know we kind of got off topic a little bit the imperial chantry interprets this part of the chant of light to basically mean that mages they should never control the minds of other people and that otherwise though magic should benefit the rulers of men as much as possible whereas the orlesian chantry interprets this as like okay we need to limit magic as much as possible right Mm-hmm. Well, the Taventer priests decided that they should change the chant of light to reflect their interpretation a little bit more clearly. And then the Divine and Val Royo found out about this and was furious and basically ordered them to change the chant back to the original version. And they, of course, refused. And that's what kicks off everything. And so now I think would be a great time for our midbreak. Um, yeah, let's get into it. I just want to say again, we have an echo of actual church history before we get to our break <laughs> in that this is another thing that like there are two because there's building tensions between the western side of the church and the eastern side of the church and then both elect their own pope and then those popes excommunicate each other. You know, at this point, at this point, I I am afraid that Bioware has just kind of come up with this themselves and that they don't know the actual history and it's all just a big coincidence. That would be the most hilarious thing 
that has ever happened. If anyone knows David Gator or Patrick Weeks or any of these writers who could come up and shed some light into this, I would appreciate it. (laughs) But let's go to the mid-break. All right. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Ah, Hawk stepped in the poopy. I love you. Want a sandwich? All this for me. And I didn't get Alexius anything. Send him a fruit basket. Everyone loves those. So welcome to the middle of the show where we talk about all things with the podcast, but not about the lore of Dragon Age. It's here where we thank our patrons. Thank you to all of our patrons who support us on Patreon. Especially our first patrons who are Lisa M and Genesis. A special thank you to our Divine Tier patron Kit. A very, very special thank you to the Nug King, the one and only Lewis H. Um, if you would like to support us on Patreon, you can follow that link in the episode description or go to patreon.com slash DA Lorecast and you can join us there at the various tiers with lots of benefits. If you want to join us on our monthly episode in the show, you need to sign up at the First Enchanter tier or higher. Um, it starts at $20 a month if you want to come on the show with us. But we greatly su- appreciate all our patrons who support us in whatever way they can. We also really know that monetary support is not something everyone can do. And so there's a great way to support us by just leaving us ratings and reviews. You can leave a five-star rating and a worded review on Apple, and we'll read it out on the future episode of the show. And also you can now comment on our episodes in Spotify. And so if you leave us five stars and leave us a comment on one of the episodes, we will read it out on a future episode of the show. So do we have a Spotify comment to read today? I do. And this one is from Caitlin. And Caitlin says, this is the best podcast. Quick speaking, to the point, clean enough to play around my kids. Y'all rock. I really hope BioWare has employees and developers that tune in too. Thank you so much, Caitlin. I really appreciate your review. I'm glad that we're clean enough to play around the kids because sometimes I get concerned. Okay, moving on. It's mostly just patron episodes that are the issue. Let's be real. That's true. That's true. And the last thing is to join our Discord where you can come and hang out with us. You can follow that link on the episode description or you can go to our website, cupspodcasting.com and find the link there. You can come hang out with us in Discord and talk about all kinds of stuff. It's a great place to hang out. Yeah, that's all I got. All right. Well, let's get back into it. (laughs) Oh, there. Giant icicle tits. Ice. Tittles. You're looking for titsicles. Oh, that's good. Yes, and it's a real nice night for an evening. Um... <laughs> oh, you fear barbarians will swoop down upon you. Yes, swooping is bad. All right, so it's time for the march itself. The actual what happens in the real Exalted March, not just what's leading up to it. Unfortunately... This is a little bit different than the other ones we've covered. The other ones we've covered very much had a, these are the battles we know about. This is tactically what happened. 
etc. This is the resolution. We don't know all of that information here. So I'm going to present what we do know. And if we end up figuring out more later on after a new game or a new book or show or whatever, we'll do a follow up. Um, but so in 387 Towers, the Orlesian Chantry is um, that th this is when they learn that the Taventer branch was interpreting the Canticle of Transfigurations differently. So this is 387 Towers. Um, and like I mentioned earlier, they had actually made changes to the chant itself. As a result, the divine at that time, Divine Joyous II, basically demanded that the Taventer branch completely abandon their ideas about mage freedom and representation in government. She also demanded that their chantries needed to stop teaching the alternatives, and this happens exactly one year into her reign as divine. Taventer, as one may expect, completely refused the divine's demands. They claimed that all of Val Royale was corrupt and that they didn't have to listen to them because of it. So in response, Divine Joyous II labels all of Taventer as heretics, basically excommunicating the Taventer Chantry from the Orlesian Chantry. Divine Joyous II is breaking one of the cardinal rules of working in religious organizations, which is don't make any drastic changes in your first year. I don't think that was common knowledge in fantasy worlds back then. That's true. But, you know. Yeah, that is what they say. That is that is the that is the wisdom. Yeah. But moving on, so she basically excommunicates Tevinter from the Chantry organization. Tevinter's response to be fair, to give Taventer a compliment, they are always going to meet the energy that is given to them. Like somebody attacks you, they're going to attack you. Somebody gives you a compliment, they're going to give you a compliment right back. Like that's just who they are, I feel. So the Archon at the time appointed Grand Cleric Valhale to be the Imperial Divine. This was a huge deal, as Grand Cleric Valhale was not only a man, but also a mage. And not only was Valhale a mage, but he was the single most prominent member of the Tevinter Circle. So, in 399 Towers, which is about 13, 12, 13 years later, after all of this kind of starts... Divine Valhale declared an official Tevinter holiday. So everybody got the day off work on the day the Divine Joyous II died. I really hate to like give Tevinter slack because, you know, I said maybe issues, but I'm going to be fair when it's fair to, to say this. Divine Joyous II, whoever is advising her, is bad at their job. Um, mm -hmm. Like... One, you have to know the context of the people that you're dealing with. For example, like if you go into a church and you know that they're really proud of their big screen TV that they spent a lot of money on and they're really proud of it and they're looking at it, do not walk in and say, we're going to get rid of the TV. Right, right. It's And it's not, this is not even a church thing. This is not even a religious organization thing. This is a people yeah. thing. Like, it's just how people operate. So, yes, you're right. Divine Joyous did not know what she was doing. Right. And Taventer, you should know, is a very proud country, a very country that takes a lot of pride in who they are and their power and their influence. 
And in a lot of ways, in a real world country that we may or may not live in, but most definitely do live in, there's a lot of pride and things of like, if you don't live here, don't tell us what to do. Yeah, especially in the part we live in. Yeah. True. So, But no, yeah, Divine Joyous did not have a clue. And I feel like if she, if somebody else was the Divine at this time, maybe this would have ended up differently. But she basically attacks them in words. Like, what do you expect them to do? Not retaliate? So, you know, they, they declare this holiday when she dies. It's like a festival, celebrations, whatever. All the other Androstians throughout Thetis are absolutely enraged that Tevinter has the audacity to do this. They are so angry that they name Valhale to be the Black Divine, and that's how this nickname for the Imperial Divine came about. In response, the Orlesian Chantry then attempts four different exalted marches to eradicate the Imperial Chantry, and they tried to eradicate the entire city of Menrathus. So the four exalted marches, in response to all of this, the Orlesian Chantry then attempts four different exalted marches to eradicate the Imperial Chantry and the entire city of Menrathus. These four exalted marches last from 440 Black to 510 Exalted. These attempts do not succeed. None of them succeed. None of them make any real inroads into Tevinter, and they are cut short by the outbreak of the fourth blight. Tevinter's response to the blight is to do nothing. They refused adamantly to send aid to the South. And I think this is fair honestly if somebody's been attacking me for 70 years there's no way in hell i'm gonna send them help god forbid that the sixth blight starts in parvalin well parvalin's also an island so that would be pretty unlikely right but anyway what i'm saying is like the reading around doesn't really like paint the picture of like how devastating this is because we know that a lot of the fourth blight takes place over in um, the free marches, right? Like the final battle is over in the free marches. Yeah. Well, it's kind of split between some of it happens in the Anderfells. Some of it happens in the Eastern free marches. Some of it happens in Antiva. Right. So you have now the gray wardens are headquartered in the Anderfels. Let's play geography. What stands between eastern half of Thetis and the Free Marches and the Anderfels? Well, Deventer. Orle is there too. But, you know, like the Anderfels are more north than Orle. Mm-hmm. You have now, where the Blight is strongest, you have now cut them off from each other because there's this huge landmass and people that just refuse to do anything about it. Yeah, it's not the smartest decision. But it's interesting to me that, like, this continues for so much longer after Divine Joyous dies. Like, she she dies um, in 399 Towers, and this happens in the Black and Exalted Ages. So it's not just her, it's other Divines, too, that are doing this. Mm-hmm. And I understand, I, I understand the viewpoint of like, okay, we need to make sure these people, like, if we're going to be aligned with them as an organization, like, we need to make sure we're all on the same page on our belief systems. I understand that. But as per usual, 
They just take it to an unnecessary level. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, the sad part of it is that we don't have a lot of information about what exactly the rest of these exalted marches looked like. We don't have any information about any specific battles or if there were multiple battles, how long they lasted. Basically, we just know that they do exist, that they did happen and what led up to them and what the aftermath is. So hopefully, hopefully we get more information when we go to Tevinter about maybe Maybe some locations the battles happened and things like that. Well, I'm, I mean, I'm hoping for it being set to venture that we get a lot of to venture history yes. codexes, kind of like we did with, you know, Kurt, we got a lot of Kirkwall history in DA2, and we got a lot of Ferelden history in Dragon Age Origins. Yeah, and I'm I'm sure we will. I just hope that a lot of these gaps get filled in and not it's not just completely new stuff that we've never heard of. Like, I want more information about some of these things that are existing as well. Let's move into the aftermath a little bit, um, because there are some some major changes that happen as a result of these exalted marches. So basically, the biggest impact of these four exalted marches is that they did nothing but finalize the separation between the Orlesian Chantry and the Imperial Chantry. There's no hope for reunification between the two. Even today, there is no hope that these two will be reunified. So they will be separate forever. And honestly, the Imperial Chantry, they've, they put in a lot of changes after these exalted marches. But after those changes were implemented, not a lot has been changed since then. So some of the changes that were implemented as a result of this uh, exalted march are basically any kind of check or prohibition against magic is now non-existent. The Chantry and Tevinter wholesale supports the use of magic and all of the systems of Tevinter, so much so that they receive a tithe any time a slave is bought or sold in Tevinter. Male priests have also become more and more common, and the divine is always a man. The Imperial Divine is always chosen from the group of first enchanters specifically, and the Imperial Divine takes the role of Divine and Grand Enchanter together. So those are kind of the the political, theological, ecclesial changes that happen to the Imperial Chantry. But as we always do in, in, in Exalted March episodes, my discussion questions, I have a couple. And basically, I just want to know if you think that this Exalted March was successful and if you see either the Imperial Chantry or the Orlesian Chantry in a different light now. Um, so do I see the Imperial Chantry or the Orlesian Chantry in a new light? No, because I think both organizations are as corrupt as they ever have. Um, this has just kind of supported my ideas. I feel a little more of, I guess, sympathy with the Imperial Chantry in this exalted march, just because I think that they would have, they might not be the way they are had these exalted, exalted marches not happened. Um, and if the Orlesian Chantry hadn't reacted the way it did. And so this leads into the next question in that, no, I do not think this Exalted March was successful. Because not only did you fail to get the Chantry, the Imperial Chantry to change anything, you swung them further into the opposite of you. And now you have made it a point of Tevinter pride to 
have these differences in the Imperial Chantry because we fought for this. We battled for this. This is what makes us to venter. And now you've created a sense of nationalism in like, if you want to be to venter, you need to support these ideals. I think that probably to my earlier statement, probably to venter would end up in the same place that it is now. I just think there would be more opposition maybe to slavery or maybe the use of magic. Because there wouldn't be such, there might not be such a strong sense of nationalism without these exalted marches. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I see what you're saying. I think before I started doing the research for this episode, I had more sympathy for the Imperial Chantry than I do now. Um, I totally understand that the Orlesian Chantry, they're, they're the provocateur in this situation. Like they're the ones that provoke to venture. They're the ones that kind of cause all of this. But at the same time, the Imperial Chantry just kind of like said, oh, you're going to attack me? Well, I'm going to attack you right back. And I'm going to take everything you say about me, every insult you've ever thought about sending my way. And I'm going to meet that insult and I'm going to become that. And I just feel like, I don't know. The thing that I can't get over and that I will never be able to get over is that they receive a tithe every time a slave is bought or sold into Venter. And it's just like, how can you, and I know that technically they don't worship Andraste, but how can you revere someone as a saint who was a slave, who was enslaved by your country and still think that that's okay? It makes no sense to me. A hundred percent agree. And I think that part of this sits of like, and we have to beg the question, had these exalted marches not happened, would the Venatori have been able to even gain a foothold in Tevinter? Would there have been enough support for them? Why, why did you think they wouldn't be? Just because I'm imagining a world where like, you basically have made the Imperial Chantry in there, or not the Imperial Chantry, the Orlesian Chantry in their response to this has basically put a big old fat taboo on everything that Taventer is. This sets up systems to be like, oh, we don't want to be like those Orlesian Chantry, which allows for people who may be Venatory supporters to play upon that fear and propaganda and sway things like oh well i should be in power because like i'm not going to make us be like those orlesian chantry i'll make us greater than the orlesian chantry and they're the venatori and that's the whole venatori thing is to restore to venter to the glorious empire that it once was would they have like would there be an idea that like somehow the past was glorious into venter if they hadn't had to fight for this identity against the Orlesian Chantry. I think it would still be there. I'm just curious if it, it would be as prevalent as it is when we get to Inquisition. Yeah, I think that's a fair question, and I don't I don't know the answer. Um, but, I mean, I think that this Exalted March definitely also makes me see the Orlesian Chantry in a different light, because, like... Not only are they corrupt, not only are they unjust, not only do they go back on their word, but they're also dumb. Like, they also are bad 
tacticians, you know, and I know that it's different people over the years. It's not always like the same group of people, but like, come on, at least have one thing going for you. Okay. I'll take it back. They have some cool robes, but like, Mm. is that it? That's all you really got? You know, and you could look at us because like between the two of us, like a lot of our favorite characters are members of the Chantry when we think about Cassandra and Cullen and Liliana and that's all I got for the three there's of us. There's three. But there's those, three. But those three rank pretty high on all of our lists. But I always view them in this way. Like, I view them more as Androstians than I do as members of the Chantry. And I think that there's a difference there. Um, because there's a lot of people, like, the people that I interact with who are like entities of the Chantry and I feel like represent in their Chantry role to me, Chancellor Rod- Roderick, um, Mother Giselle, Grand Cleric Elfina, you know, Sister Patrice, all these people, I have serious problems with their institutional power. And so I've always had this idea that like, okay, or Legion, Ch- Androstianism is not the problem. The Chantry is the problem. agreed. Maybe that, I think that statement should be the like tagline motto of our podcast. We don't hate Androstianism, but all my homies hate the Chantry. (laughs) Do you have anything else to add about the Chantry, this exalted march before we get into our side character? Um, the Chantry is the worst. Is that it? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah, fair. I think we can all agree. So I thought it would be especially timely to talk about a person from Taventer um, during the side character for this episode. So today we're talking about Archon Radonis, who is the current Archon in Taventer. Oh. Yes. So, which if you've read the comics, he appears very often. So, um, well, let's just dive right in. Basically, he succeeded to the role in 929 Dragon, which is a few years before the Fifth Blight begins and the events of Dragon Age Origins occur. Radonis specifically appears in two places, which is Mage Killer, the comic, and an Inquisition. So in the Mage Killer comic, Radonis uses a slave named Flavius to lure out Marius, who is a famous mage assassin, hence the name of the comic, Mage Killer, when Marius and his accomplice Tessa Forsythia, whom we've talked about multiple times on the show, when they arrive to eliminate their target, they find themselves surrounded by Altus mages and Radonis himself. Radonis says that he wants to discuss who Marius and Tessa will kill on his behalf. Essentially, Radonis tells them that, that he's discovered the one and only main venatory plot to restore Tevinter of old. And that this goes against his goals for the Imperium. And so he believes that the Venatori's plot would actually also risk Divine Justinia V calling another exalted march against Tevinter. And he doesn't want to do that because he knows that they wouldn't survive that. Or this is because they would then have the Orlesian Chantry attacking them from the south and the Canari attacking them from the north. And Rodonis realizes that this is not something they would just, they just wouldn't be able to survive it. And so because many of the Venatori are magisters and prominent mages, Rodonis also knows that he cannot strike at them directly. So he sends Marius and Tessa to kill these Venatori. 
Three out of the four of Rodonis's targets are killed, but Marius refuses to kill the last one, who is Calpurnia. And then in Inquisition, Rodonis requests the aid of the Inquisition in removing a Venatory cohort operating along the Tevinter Imperium's border of Navarra, and that he felt like the presence of Inquisition troops operating so close to the border would be less obvious um, and less of a big deal than, obviously, soldiers of Tevinter. This request is complicated by the fact that the King of Navarra is requesting the exact same favor, and they each want the Inquisition to declare they're doing it as a favor to each nation, um, but they don't want the other one to know, obviously. Um, So the Inquisitor basically can choose to help Rodonis or King Marcus of Navarra, though a human Inquisitor can actually use their family connections to keep both nations placated. And if Josephine Montillier is asked for her opinion, she says that helping Rodonis will be more rewarding because gaining the favor of the Tevinter Imperium is difficult. And because of King Marcus's age and poor health means that he's fixing to die and that he'll leave the throne of Navarra to his heirs pretty soon. So um, I feel like the game kind of implies that you should choose Redonis in this war table mission. Um, But yeah, so those are really the only two major places we see Redonis in Mage Killer in Inquisition. And then we also know one little fun fact about him is that he loves cats like a lot, a lot. So yeah, that's Redonis. I think this is interesting because he's the current Archon of Deventer. So it'll be curious to see when we go to Deventer if I hope we at least get some kind of mention of what's going on. Kind of like Dorian and Mavaris's revolution that they're starting in Deventer. It makes me curious if maybe Radonis will be a potential ally for that movement. Just because he, he might not be like fully revi- revisionistic of Deventer, but he is anti-Venatory. So it would be it would be curious to kind of like to see if he is a person who you can kind of sway. And maybe one of our missions will be to gain the favor of Radonis to try to sway him to our side in doing things. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that I think the thing about Radonis that's so interesting to me is that he is very much an archon that feels like a modern archon. Like he knows that he can't bring back the Tevinter of old, nor does it seem like he wants to. He obviously still is very powerful and like has a lot of power and will use it to get his way. But he also, it feels like he doesn't want Tevinter to be this like closed off thing. This very, very like, oppressive or maybe as oppressive of a nation than it maybe has been in the past. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, and this might just be a practical move on Rodonis's part in that he knows that he's kind of caught between a rock and a hard place. You know, he's got the Kunari kind of advancing on him on and off, which the Kunari don't strike me as an unrelenting force when they decide that they need to do something. And so I think Rodonis knows that he needs to play nice with the other nations of Thetis because if he needs to call on help, he wants to be able to do that. Right. Absolutely. 
But yeah, um, he's an interesting character. I want to know more. Like there, there is things that I want to know more about Taventure. Well, like I hope it leans into this nuance of like the system is corrupt, but we have all these people that we can now put faces with in mm-hmm. this area. Yeah, and I think that they will. I do think they will. Mm-hmm. That's all I have. Anything you have? That's all I got. Let's close it up. And a special shout out to our Nung King patron, Lewis H., who gets a special shout out at the end of every episode. Thank you so much for your support. All right. Well, thank you all for listening to the Dragon Age Lorecast. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Dragon Age Lorecast. You can find us on Twitter at DA Lorecast. If you have any lore questions, topics to unpack, or side character suggestions, join our Cups Podcasting and More Discord server. It's easily the best place on the internet. You can also support us financially through our Patreon. You can find us there on patreon.com slash dragonagelorecast. The Dragon Age Lorecast is part of the Robots Radio Network. For more information about the Robots Radio Network, join the Discord server via the link in our episode description. If you enjoyed the show or learned something new today, please subscribe, leave us a review, and join the Patreon. And if you enjoyed our intro and outro music, give a big thank you to Pipe Man Studios. Thank you, Pipe Man. Thanks again for listening to the Dragon Age Lorecast. We'll see you next time. Well, do you know your video game lovers? Have you ever wondered how your video game bays stack up against all the other delectable digital dates? I'm Genesis, the girl whose motto in life is love, laugh, tequila. And on Two Girls, One Ship, we analyze, rate, and review all that the world of video game romances has to offer. And I'm Vervada, the hopeless romantic cat lady and lifelong gamer. But you should know that our podcast centers on character and romance analysis and doesn't shy away from exploring the fun of physical connection. Or from the deep emotional connections built between two characters, using specific in-game dialogue and the overall narrative journey. So join the two girls, one ship, shipsters, and remember, beauty is in the eye of the controller.